and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. In fact, this is the first time he's really put any of his research out there, but it is freaking incredible, just absolutely off the chain. So on that note, I give you this independent European-based avid podcast uh, podcast listener who goes by Senate. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, sir. Hey, nice to be here. Absolutely. Okay, guys, this show is very near and dear to me. This is a continuation of the Farm Story to Wackle series, but with a twist. We're going to look at the evolution of the old Wackle network from the end of the Cold War up to current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith and I and the rest of the original Wackle crew began the podcast series, you know, we saw this as largely a historical undertaking. But as the show we did on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle network is still around and still a player, but with a new generation of uh, individuals and groups and institutions that have taken up the work of the OGs. And at the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever, private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions that we shall make with this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of Wackle and like bodies from the Cold War era. Whereas during that period, Wackle served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and even in some cases the neoliberal order to, you know, work things out with the motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, the next generation of black terrorists and religious fanatics and cultists of all stripes. I mean, this was an incredible milieu, both sides of which largely still existing today. But increasingly, it's the private military and private intelligence companies where they're doing business with each other on any number of levels now. So this coincided with a profound transformation of organized crime post-Cold War. All across the world, but especially in Southern Africa and the Soviet Union, scores of highly trained ex-secret police, spies, and special operators were suddenly unemployed. Many drifted into organized crime before founding their own private security companies. This 
deeply changed the characteristic of organized crime, bringing in military-style hierarchy, training, and discipline into what had previously been primarily family affairs. And the results have been profound, to put it mildly. This is a major part of the Wackle PMC slash PIC story. I've already dealt with the Southern African side in the uh, Secret History of International uh, Fascism series, a link of which I will provide in the description for that particular installment. I urge you guys to all check it out for some background, but that's not what we're concerned with today. At the center of it all was the most enigmatic of private military companies, one that I recently addressed in, a, in the Patreon section. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited. But it was so much more than that, as we shall see over the course of this series. Indeed, it may be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I truly wish I was exaggerating with that claim. But... As I think you guys will see over the course of this series, uh, I don't think it's that far off the mark. So anyway, this show, as with all future Wackle-related content, is dedicated to the memory of the great, great Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, an OG Wackle contributor who is dearly missed. For those of you unaware, Ed was the Mooney defector and the guy who provided us with so much incredible information on both the Unification Church and the OUNB, a subject that you'll be hearing a lot about over the course of this series. Uh, so hopefully I will be able to do something that will do Ed proud because he strongly believed in the significance of the Ukrainian connection, as I have uh, come to believe as well. So... Ed, this is for you. And on that note, let us start the show. Okay, the origins of Far West are rooted in a unique series of historical circumstances that unfolded during the 1970s. The 70s was not a great decade for the U.S. from a geopolitical standpoint. In 1971, Richard Nixon was forced to take the United States off the gold standard formally. This led to the first serious economic downturn the nation had experienced since World War II. 
The Watergate scandal emerged in 1974, followed by the uh, unglamorous U.S. withdrawal during uh, from Vietnam during the following year. This basically marked the end of the U.S.'s toehold on the mainland of Eastern Asia outside of South Korea. We have been a staple in the mainland since the end of World War II. I mean, really just kind of think about it. The Pacific Theater, the Korean War, the Laos crisis, Vietnam, etc., etc. So this was no small turn of events after a quarter of a century of military intervention there. Finally, the decade ended with stagflation and the removal of the Shah, the good old rock of ages, from Iran. Up to this point in time, Iran had been our most important regional partner in the Middle East, as hard as that might be for some of our younger listeners to believe. To the outside world, and in more than a few uh, U.S. foreign policy circles, this was seen as a disastrous reversal fortunes for the American empire. Our economy appeared to be wavering domestically while our legions were in retreat across the globe. It should have been exciting times for the Soviets. And to be sure, state media had done much to advance Soviet prestige during the decade. But internally, things were falling apart. By the late 1970s, intelligence realists in the KGB understood that the USSR was effectively bankrupt, both politically and financially. Then head of the KGB and a sitting Politburo member called Vladimir Krichkov was especially adamant on these points. Krichkov was a protege of Yuri Andropova, former KGB head whom Krichkov had served under before taking over the dreaded spy agency. So by 1982, Andropova had become the chairman of the Politburo, effectively making him the ruler of the Soviet Union. Elsewhere, Krichkov was close to the top of the KGB, and this laid the stage for the floodgates of capitalism and crime to be unleashed upon the Soviet Union. Okay, so I'm going to quote here a little bit from an excellent book called Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West by a lady named Catherine Belton. There's a lot of uh, interesting stuff in this work, but there is a certain bias to it, which uh, you might get a chance to point out here in just a second. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to take this here from pages 61 through 64 to give you guys a bit of a, a sense of what these uh, folks were thinking. <clears throat> And this ties into eventually the uh, wealth that was spirited out of the uh, Soviet Union, which I'll get to here uh, in just a second. So anyway, the story of the prosecutor's search for the missing party wealth was fast forgotten in the tumult of collapse. But what the pros uh, prosecutors found then was a blueprint for everything that was to come later. The smuggling schemes and friendly firms and the trusted custodians became the model in which the Putin regime and its influence operations would run. The fact was that parts of the KGB foreign intelligence elite had begun preparing for a market transition ever since the former KGB chief, Yuri Andropova, became Soviet leader in 1982. In the early 80s, a handful of Soviet economists had begun to quietly discuss the need for a move to the market, whispering in the privacy of their kitchens about the chronic inefficiencies of the Soviet economy and publishing underground treaties on the need for reform. 
At the same time, there was a growing realization among the tight-knit group within the intelligence elite that the Soviet economy was in a death spiral, that it was impossible to maintain the empire of the Eastern Bloc, let alone run broader influence and disruption campaigns in South America, the Middle East, and Africa, and in the West. If you want to have a policy of being a great empire, you should be able to spend a huge amount of money, said one person who worked closely with reform-minded foreign intelligence chiefs in those days. It's not within our means to compete with the U.S. It was very costly and very difficult, impossible perhaps. Even before progressive elements within the KGB began tentatively preparing for a possible transition in East Germany, they've been pushing for sweeping reform in the Soviet Union itself. The Soviet economy was being drained of resources by the push to build up military production and compete with the West at the expense of everything else. The communist state was, in theory, succeeding in delivering its socialist vow of providing all workers with free education and health care. But in practice, the planned economy simply didn't work. Instead, there was a corrupted system under which the ordinary people of uh, the communist states were supposed to protect lived largely in poverty. The communist state could access plenty of natural resources for corrupt trading schemes, but it was failing to develop light industry to produce competitive consumer goods. There was no private ownership or even any understanding of what profit was. Indeed, the government handed down production quotas to each and every enterprise, controlled all earnings and fixed prices for everything. There was no motivation for anyone, and the system just didn't work. Consumer good prices were fixed at incredibly low levels, but because of this, there was an acute shortage of everything. From bread, sausages, and other foodstuffs, to cars, televisions, refrigerators, and even apartments. The shortages meant qu quotas and rationing, sometimes for months on end. Informal connections and payoffs to officials were often the only way to jump weeks-long uh, quarries for the most basic necessities, for shoe repairs, for hospital beds, for coffins and funeral rites even. The overweening power of the Soviet bureaucracy had built corruption deep into the system, while under these conditions the black market flourished. In the late 60s, black marketeers, known as the Teskakovi, began to set up underground factories in which spare parts and materials siphoned from the state-owned plants were used to produce goods outside the regulated economy. Such activities could result in jail sentences for 10 years or more, but increasingly, these factories' outputs was becoming the only way to make up for at least some of the shortages of the Soviet plan system. Hard currency speculators would trawl the halls of the Soviet in-tourist hotels, risking prison to buy dollars from visiting foreign tourists at an exchange rate far more advantageous to the tourists than the fixed Soviet one. It was a good deal for the speculators, too. In the system of Soviet shortages, anyone with access to hard currency was king. Dollars would gain you access to the well-stocked, Briscozy shops reserved for the Soviet elite, where the shelves were crammed with the quality foodstuffs and other luxuries of the West. It would enable you to buy Western clothing, Western pop music, and anything produced outside the stagnating and dreary Soviet economy, all of which could then be sold on for vast profits. 
The shortages in the Soviet economy ran so deep that, according to former KGB foreign intelligence operative Yuri Shivitz, everyone was for sale. Factory directors fiddled the books to give materials to the black marketeers in return for a cut of the profits. Law enforcement officials turned a blind eye to the currency speculators marauding through Soviet hotels in return for bribes and access to the hotel buffet. And at the top of the pyramid, ever since the 70s, the party elite have been taking a cut of the smuggling and trading schemes. All of it undermined any efforts to improve production. The Soviet Union could not even make a pair of tights or shoes, said Shevitz. Prostitutes would give themselves for one night for one stocking and then the next night for the other. It was a nightmare. It was the members of the security services foreign intelligence who saw most clearly that the system had to change. They're the ones who could travel and could see how the market economy operated in the West, how the socialist system was failing to keep up with the technological progress of the Western world. Among them was the legendary Soviet military intelligence chief, Mikhail Milenshinstein, a strapping Kojak bald man, with thick bushy eyebrows who'd served for decades in the u.s and then returned to moscow to head the intelligence department of the soviet military academy in the 70s he moved to the institute for the usa in canada a think tank that worked closely with fallon's influential international department where he was among those working on ways to engineer a rapprochement with the west in the halls of the Institute, an elegant pre-revolutionary building tucked away down a narrow leafy street behind Moscow's main thoroughfares. Milchenstein worked with other associates of the Soviet foreign intelligence elite on dis, uh, disarmament proposals. He forged close ties with the former U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, as he sought ways out of what he called a vicious circle of the standoff with the West. Across town, deep in the southern suburbs of the city, in a dark and sprawling 70s-era tower block, a group of economists at the Institute for World Economy and International Relations, known as IMEMO, began working on reforms that would start to relax the Soviet state's monopoly on the economy. Among them were a Rar Semisanian, a bright young economist in his early 30s, who was the son of a high-ranking Soviet military intelligence general. He worked closely with his deputy, Andrea Ekkamov, a foreign intelligence operative who would later be sent to the head of the Soviet Union's bank in Vienna and subsequently became one of the most important financiers behind Vladimir Putin's regime. Simon Yane made research trips to East Germany, where he clearly saw how far behind the Soviet economy lagged. It was a different world, he said. Indeed it was. All right, so skipping on over here to pages uh, 65 and 67 here. Under Andropov, a new generation of economists was being educated. The 20-something Yegor Gadiar discussed far-reaching market reforms that he believed were crucial to the survival of the Soviet bloc with the equally youthful Peter Avon. Uh, by the way, this Peter Avon guy, spelled P-Y-O-T-R-A-V-E-N, would go on to become one of the big figures in uh, the Alpha Bank, which would have a relationship with Far West Limited. So just keep that in mind, folks. But anyway, continuing with the book here. 
both of them worked in another key research institute in the early 80s, the All-Soviet Institute for Systems Research. And both of them were from the heart of the Soviet elite. Avon's father had been one of the country's most respected academics, while Gadars had worked undercover of being a correspondent in uh, Pravadia in Cuba, where he rose to the rank of admiral. Fidel Castro and Che Guevara visited him in his home, and his son grew up surrounded by high-ranking Soviet generals. Both Gadar and Avon were to play leading roles in the market reforms of the new Russia. All the market reformers who later came to prominence, from Gorbachev to the young reformers, were brought up in the institutions created by Andropov, said Vladimir Yukoninin, a close Putin ally from the KGB and later a senior Russian official. The first market reforms were mapped out at these institutions. Once Andropov had taken over as leader, progressive factions in the KGB, led by the Foreign Intelligence Directorate and the Economic Crime Directorate, began to experiment with the creation of a new class of entrepreneurs who would operate outside the confines of the Soviet planned economy. They began with the black marketeers, the Chekhovsiovs. The real perestroika started in, under Andropov said Christian Mikhail, a financial manager who for more than a decade handled funds for the Soviet and the Russian regimes. The message was given out to turn a blind eye to the black market. He knew the country was otherwise headed for mass starvation. There were there was a conscious creation of the black market, agreed Anton Surikov. Remember that name, guys? Anton Surikov a former senior Russian military intelligence operative. It was impossible to work in the black market without the KGB connections and without protection from the KGB. Without them, no shadow business was possible, said Surikov. What had begun as corruption within the system became a KGB-cultivated petri dish for the future market economy and a stopgap measure to fill the shortages of the command economy. The black marketeers were mostly from the Soviet Union's ethnic minorities. Often, they had very little choice, their careers having been, having been blocked due to prejudices of the party elite. The only people who went into it were the people who had no prospects in the normal Soviet system, the ones who had hit a glass ceiling and could go no further, said Mikhail. These were the ethnic minorities, the Georgians, the Chechnyans, and the Jews. All right, so I'm going to stop with Putin's people there. So a few points here that I want to make. A, we're going to see a lot about how um, some of the ethnic minorities of the Soviet Union uh, later turned up in very crucial roles in Far West Limited, and that's important to keep in mind. But another thing about this that I want to emphasize, this guy here that I just mentioned, this uh anton surikov he was is or was rather one of the founders of far west limited and he was also one of the principal sources for this book that i just quoted from at length putin's people by Catherine belton this is one of the main works available in english that has explored putin's russia and the surikov guy was a big source for it so as a result of this this has a also very distinctly anti-putin take 
And again, this isn't to say that, you know, there's not a lot of legitimacy to the claims that she makes. Again, Surikov was a very senior and well-connected figure in the Russian intelligence community. But he's doing this for propagandistic purposes, to create a specific narrative to be sold to the West through this very prestigious book, especially when they gained a lot of traction after the 2016 elections. And I just wanted to point that out because psychological warfare is a big part of this story. And this book, which I'm going to cite a couple more times, is a part of this psychological warfare narrative that Far West Limited has been crafting. Okay, guys? All right, so let's get back here to the state of the Soviet Union in the 80s and those glorious secret accounts. All right, so once Andropov's position was secure, he embarked upon a series of major reforms to the Soviet Union's economic system that would lay the foundation of a perestroika under Gorbachev. Krichkov, Andropov's former deputy, realizing Glasnost was not only inevitable but highly desirable, put a plan in motion to assure the key party officials, especially those tied to the national security state, would enjoy a soft landing while the rest of the Soviet economy was ravaged by the transition to capitalism. Krichkov set up over 600 companies in 1988 with links to the West. The principal purpose was to ensure the KGB remained a potent force after the transition to capitalism. These competing companies would operate on sound business principles while their profits would go towards funding future KGB operations. <clears throat> this involved integrating these security assets into the twin hearts of Western capitalism. That would be Wall Street and the City of London. These assets would learn the innermost workings of finance, the wellspring of Western capitalism. It was hoped that through these efforts, the Soviets would be able to destabilize the West from within. It's entirely possible these activities had the tactical approval of the Americans as well. During 1987, Krichkov, as head of the KGB, found himself visiting the U.S. with Gorbachev. During this trip, he met with several high-ranking American figures in national security circles. They included Fritz Ermuth, a storied Soviet specialist then working on the National Security Council, and Colin Powell, then heading the NSC. That is the National Security Council, so to say. But the most intriguing guest was the then Deputy Director of the CIA, a post that was held by Robert Gates. Reportedly, Krichkov told Mr. Gates to misrepresent the strength of the Russian state to his American counterparts while bemoaning that Perestroika wasn't advancing quickly enough. Some have speculated that this was his way of telling Gates to speed up the process. Gates would meet with Krichkov two additional times before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So keep this in mind, guys, as Gates appears as a major recurring figure in this saga. Okay, and also this meeting, the initial one occurred in 1987. It was 88 when a lot of these front companies were um, set up. And this kind of goes also into the broader U.S., uh, strategic blueprint by this point in time. I mean, a big part of why the Soviets were freaking out about their economy's ability to match U.S. military capabilities is that we had already started to telegraph our new strategy by the early 70s, and it really revolved around a figure, uh, a technocrat named Stefan Pisani, 
big figure in the American Security Council and the World Anti-Communist League. And Bassani basically called for a massive U.S. spending spree in arms with the purpose of bankrupting the Soviet economy because he knew that they could not keep up financially with the rate that we could produce weapons. And this objective was pushed throughout the 70s by the so-called Team B. This was largely a group of ex-intelligence officers that began the, uh, or I should say ratcheted up the time-honored uh, process of over-exaggerating Soviet military strength to create the illusion of a massive arms gap that we needed to uh, counterbalance by a massive spending spree. And all of this went into effect during the 1980s when Reagan came into power and also when a, uh, a wave of terrorism was unleashed across the go, much of it supported by the World Anti-Communist League in Latin America, in Southern Africa, and in Afghanistan that drew the Soviet Union into many of these spots militarily, and if nothing else, at least forced them to provide arms. So... Again, it's important to emphasize the role that Wackel was playing in all of this. They provided the sort of ideological uh, plan for how we could bankrupt the Soviet Union on the one hand, and then they also were helping to organize a lot of the, the practical forces that could be used to erode the Soviet Union's hold in the developing world. And so again, you know, Krichkov and all these guys are aware of this. You know, I mean, we weren't trying to hide this. Stefan Pasoni was actively publishing uh, these plans and foreign policy journals. I mean, the Soviets were surely reading them. This is, again, why they were freaking out. They saw a future in which the United States was going to massively ratchet up its arms spending and its support for, quote-unquote, freedom fighters. And there was just no way they were going to be able to bear the costs of keeping pace with this, Okay. So, again, this makes this whole meeting here in 1987 so much more fascinating. Uh, Gates was not necessarily a part of these really far-right circles and wackle on the American Security Council, but Fritz Ermeth, another guy closely tied into the Far West story, was. So you got two guys here with Gates and Ermeth who would play big roles in Far West later on at this meeting as well. So again, all of this is really, really interesting. Do keep it in mind. But anyway, let us return to the intrigues playing out in Russia. So the best laid plans of mice and men, as they say. There was a major flaw in Krichkov's plan from the get-go, and that would be the man that he tapped to be his principal Western partner in these efforts. He was an Eastern European Jew turned a British media mogul who went by the name of Robert Maxwell. Yes, that would be the same Captain Bob who sired Jeffrey Epstein's future madam Ghislaine Maxwell. If tapping Maxwell to assist in this operation, it wasn't enough. Krichkov further exasperated the issue via another man Maxwell was put into contact with to assist him in these endeavors. His name is generally given as Simeon Mogliovich. A Ukrainian Jew, Mogliovich has been described as the, quote, boss of boss behind various Russian mafias. The accuracy of this is highly debatable. But 
he may well be the most intelligent and sophisticated of the Russian mafia dons at a minimum. Being groomed by Maxwell no doubt helped with that. Mogilevich first made a name for himself by smuggling Russian Jews to Israel during the 1980s. So the pipeline of Russian Jews to Israel established by Maxwell Mogilevich would later have profound implications for both countries. From the late 1980s through the 90s, in a span of a decade, roughly a million Russian Jews immigrated to Israel. Okay. By the late 1990s, they were estimated to be nearly 15% of Israel's total population. This is a huge dynamic in Israel's relation with Russia and vice versa, as we will explore in future installments. For now, though, we need to pause briefly and consider the motives of the West having laid out the position of the Russians. While Robert Maxwell is popularly depicted as an agent of the Israelis and the KGB primarily, with some American links as well, this misses one crucial component, the British one. Long before Captain Bob hooked up with any of these intelligence services, he belonged to the Crown. His relationship with the KGB was known by the British since literally its inception. Indeed, they're likely the ones who encouraged it. And this was really the basis of Maxwell's power. He was the UK's unofficial back channel to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. This almost surely involved the transference of advanced weapons technology as scientific espionage was long Maxwell's bread and butter. This is a subject that I deal with at length in a special relationship, which I urge you guys to check out for more information on this subject. All right. Uh, so just to pause here briefly, too, I want to point out is that the role the British played in all of this is often overlooked, but it is so incredibly crucial. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, the strategy that we are going to unfold over the course of this series is really one that the Crown has been working on for probably close to 200 years now. A lot of these groups especially like a lot of these ethnic groups in Russia, were very closely cultivated by the crown. Uh, this is especially true of the Ukrainians. British intelligence has been working with uh, the Ukrainian Disaropa since I think at least the early 1930s, maybe as far back as the 1920s. They were actually the first significant Western backers of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, a group that you'll be hearing a lot about specifically the Banderite faction, the good old UNB. They were big supporters of that, you know, again, all the way back in the 30s. And they also were a big supporter of a lot of these Islamic groups in Central Asia, as we will get into as well. So many of these, these networks have their origins with the UK. And in the case of Maxwell, this seems to be another interesting connection because he was very much... Uh, a part of this, uh, you know, disarro or this dysphoria of Jewish uh, uh, assets that have been used by the crown over the years as well. And again, you know, the UK did play such a, a uh, 
significant role in the creation of Israel in the first place, especially through the mechanisms of the Amri family, Julian and Leopold Amri. Um, again, it's another thing that I get into in the special relationship. So, uh, but anyway, uh, let us get back to Maxwell here. So, his uh, dubious loyalties and all that uh, it made his assignment for this a bit curious in some senses. But in all likelihood, it was probably related to an ongoing operation that the British were running against Bulgaria. So Bulgaria is easily one of the most important nations in the Cold War struggle, at least back in the day. It probably still is, but certainly during the first one. It was also the first among the Soviet satellites to seriously open its economy to the West. And it all started during the mid-1960s with the establishment of two separate entities. One was the Coracom, a hard currency chain store established to sell luxury goods to tourists and Bulgarians. And this provided Bulgaria with an early means of acquiring Western hard currencies. Far more important, however, was the establishment of the arms manufacturing behemoth known as Kentex. It was granted a monopoly on exporting Bulgarian arms to foreign hotspots. <clears throat> so Bulgaria has long enjoyed a rich history of smuggling, and Kentex opened the floodgates to this in the modern era. By the end of the 1970s, not only was Kentex selling smuggling arms to hotspots across the world, but also to uh, peoples in exchange for drugs, arts, and antiques, all kinds of other stuff. This formed the basis for the highly controversial Bulgarian connection, which rose to prominence during the 1980s. Of course, there were the arms. Kentex would sell to anyone. They sold AK-47s and rocket-powered grenades to apartheid South Africa, who in turn dispatched weapons to Yanina proxies in Angola to be used against Cuban and pro-communist forces there. Keep all that in mind, by the way, because we'll be getting back to the Yanina angola thing in a little bit. Anyway, this is an interesting case. Uh, anyway, it's not an anomaly what they were doing there. The PLO could sell narcotics to the company in exchange for arms, and even the Contras in Nicaragua ended up with the arms from Kintex. It's likely the Mujahideen in Afghanistan were outfitted with weapons from Bulgaria to kill Soviet troops as well, paying them with, for them via heroin that was uh, exported by enterprising Turks. 80% of the heroin used by Western Europeans was being smuggled through Bulgaria via Turkey on its way to Italy by the 1980s. On the Turkish end, and keep in mind Turkey was a NATO member even back then, a crucial partner was the DS, Bulgaria's version of the KGB, and on the Turkish side, another major partner were the Grey Wolves. And the Grey Wolves were a part of the stay-behind network, a crucial one in Turkey. On the Italian end, the Mafia and Propaganda Dewey collected the drugs. So both the Grey Wolves and Propaganda Dewey, again, these are crucial, crucial nodes in NATO's stay-behind networks, commonly referred to as Gladio, but that was only the name of the Italian wing. And the Bulgarian connection, incidentally, also served as the basis for later claims that Lucio Gelli, P2's longtime grandmaster, was the agent of the KGB was rather silly in my opinion uh to kind of illustrate this this whole network appears to have still been functioning as recently as the 90s 
one of the more famous or infamous P2 members was the Italian banker Roberto Calvia, who was found hanging dead from Blackfriars Bridge in London during the early 1980s. This came in a time when Banco Ambrosiano, which he headed, uh, was emerging as a central piece in what was known as the Vatican banking scandal. And it was also going into collapse as well. The whole thing with this is really closely tied to a lot of intrigues with, uh, with Italy at the time. St. Peter's Gate, which was the attempted assassination of John Paul II by a Turkish gunman supposedly trained by the Bulgarian security services, was also unfolding during this time. So anyway, Banco Ambrosiano collapses not long after Calvi's demise. It's broken up, it's sold off. One of the successors is known as uh, Banco del... Gattardo. So fast forward to the 90s. One of the guys seemingly tasked with setting up these KGB accounts is a former senior officer in said service named Felipe Turover. His father had been a senior figure in the foreign intelligence services as well, and a well-connected one at that. Among his many powerful friends was Giulio Andradia, the long-serving Italian prime minister and a former propaganda Dewey member. Gosh, imagine that. Here's this Soviet poobah's father working with a P2 man. So Turover is tasked with setting up some of these accounts to hide the party and the KGB's funds that I've been talking about with Krichkov. One of the banks he ends up using is Banco del Gatardo. Among the accounts it oversaw in this capacity was one for an entity known as Maybe Tech, I think, spelled M-A-B-E-T-E-X, an obscure Swiss company that won billions of dollars in contracts throughout the 90s to renovate the Kremlin. Maybe Tech later played a crucial role in bringing down Boris Yeltsin after it was discovered that maybe Tech had issued the family credit cards, which they in turn used to go on some epic spending sprees. Tirover was the informant who brought Yeltsin down, paving the way for Putin's rise to power. So, yeah. But anyway, I'll get into some of these intrigues in a little bit. Let's get back to Bulgaria and Kentex here. So... The West appears to have gotten far more out of this arrangement. It acquired access to Soviet-style arms to equip various quote-unquote freedom fighters across the Soviet sphere. And after being drummed out of Eastern Asia, the Bulgarian connection paved the way uh, for re-establishing the Western heroin trade. But there may have been an even more nefarious endgame at play on the part of the West. For this, we returned to the UK during the 1970s, just as Kentex was being opened when Bulgaria turned into a smuggler's haven. At the time, several prominent Bulgarians were living in London. At the forefront was Ladmilia Shevkova, the metaphysically inclined daughter of the Bulgarian dictator Tudor Shevkov. Ludmilla was a major patron of the arts and culture in Bulgaria. She also had a keen interest in esotericism. At the forefront was her fascination with the Rustin mystic Georgia Gurdjieff and Nicholas Rorick. Both men had likely done some spy work at some point in their lives, especially Rorick. 
By the 1940s, Roerich had entered into exclusive social circles in the U.S. These included, among others, then Vice President Henry Wallace. Interestingly, Ludmilla appears to have discovered Roerick later in her life when she was visiting India in 1975. There, she encountered Setsoslav Roerick, Nicholas's son. Three years later, she would declare 1978 the Roerick year. In celebration, a postage stamp of Roerick's image was taken from a portrait done by Setsoslav and was used for the stamp. Ludmilla's real calling seems to have evolved around the pre-Bulgarian pagan culture of Thracian civilization, however. And it was a good choice. Ancient Thrace was a major cultural and political center. It was said to be the home of Orpheus, whose mysteries were revered throughout the ancient world. Uh, Democritus, a philosopher and mathematician who may have been the first to conceive of atomic theory, was also from Thrace. And so was Spartacus and multiple Roman emperors from between the 3rd and 5th century AD. And finally, when Constantine was looking for an eastern capital, he selected the Thrace to establish Constantinople at. So, it was Ludmilla's interest in ancient Thracian civilization that sparked one of the most bizarre incidences to emerge from the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. Ludmilla had an interest in the alleged Bulgarian psychic and prophetess Baba Vangea, Vanga, and as the story goes, in 1981, she caught wind of these claims that Venga had pointed to a mystical treasure residing in the Galiamo uh, Radisti region of Bulgaria. The site has long had long-standing mystical connections to ancient Thrace. As such, Lebmilia wasted no time in putting together a highly secretive team to investigate the site. But as the location resided within the borders of NATO member Turkey, the expedition was given support from the DS and the Bulgarian military. And the whole thing was rather later Raiders of the Lost Ark with all these spies and commandos being used to head it. And it was cut short. The site ultimately was dynamited shut. A nearby spring overflowed and flooded the spot, creating a pool. Thus, the site was seemingly lost forever, and worse, authorities in Bulgaria began to investigate these events. At least one member of the team, Christo Mutachev, was imprisoned until the late 1980s. Now, keep him in mind as we shall return to him in these events. So, anyway, Ledmilia Shevakova was also known for a libertine lifestyle. At the forefront of her suspected lovers was the legendary Bulgarian novelist Georgi Markov. At one time, DS asked that Markov defected to the UK in 1969. So during the early 1970s, Ziakova was also in the UK, staying at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. Her DS minder at the time was... Christo Mutachev, who also became her lover during this time frame. And yes, Mutachev was the same guy she later took into Turkey for the dig at Galiamo Gradishti. But before all that, it was widely suspected that by the early 1970s, Markov, Mutachev, and even Ziakova had been turned by British intelligence. If so, 
this would have been a huge coup for the British and the West on the whole. Besides being Tudor Zikov's daughter, Zikov's daughter, Lemilia was also widely viewed as his successor to Bulgaria's leadership. What this amounts to is this woman was being groomed to be the first female ruler of a Soviet satellite. If she had been turned by the West, this was huge on a number of levels. In other words, and there is ample reason to believe that this is the case based on how things played out. Markov was famously assassinated in the UK during 1978 via a Russian shot from an umbrella. Mudachev was arrested and imprisoned for smuggling Bulgarian artifacts during the early 1980s, as noted above. Lemilia died suddenly in 1981 at the ripe old age of 39 from a sudden bout of brain cancer. At the time, again, bears repeating, she was the second most powerful figure in Bulgaria behind her father. And this is in the midst of this bizarre expedition to Galiama, Gradishti. And even the Bulgarian Minister of Minerals, another of the expedition's organizers, died suddenly during this time. This was another one of the things that led to the abrupt abandonment of the expedition. Adding further intrigue to these events were the activities of Lubmilia's legal husband, Ivan Slavkov, during this time. So Slavkov was the director general of the Bulgarian Television Services, or BTS, meaning he basically controlled all of the programming in the country. At the same time, he was brokering the above-mentioned arms deal between Kintex and South Africa. Slavkov may even have been induced into this brokerage by an arms trafficker working with the South Africans who seduced him. This is actually a uh, mother and wife duo that walked out of Austria with the uh, daughter apparently doing some of the badger work. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the German newspaper Der Spiegel broke this story in 1980, eventually resulting in Slavkov's resignation from the BTS, the Bulgarian Television Service, in 1982. Gosh, guys, isn't 1982 keep coming up a lot, doesn't it? I wonder why. <laughs> anyway, it could be concluded from this series of events that, on the one hand, Ledmilia Zevakova was aware of Bulgaria's emerging role as Eastern Europe's principal smuggling hub, especially for arms. This seems reasonable, as her husband was directly involved in it, a fact she surely would have been aware of by at least 1980 when the German press exposed him. But as the heir apparent to her father, it's likely she was abreast of these developments well before then. This adds an additional level of intrigue to the bizarre archaeological expedition she headed to Turkey shortly before her death. Afghanistan was beginning to replace the Golden Triangle as the world's primary supplier of illicit opium, so-called Golden Crescent, and the main distribution route ran between Turkey and Bulgaria before being surrendered to the loving hands of the Sicilian Mafia. Was the expedition then more concerned with the smuggling of heroin than ancient artifacts? Certainly never know, but it's highly suggestive that Ludmilla and so many people close to her either died during this period or were incarcerated or fell from grace. But the West need not have worried because Ludmilla, the, uh, because after Ludmilla, the number three in Bulgaria was Andrea Lukavov, 
Lukhanov, another DS operative and reportedly KGB bosses Vladimir Krichkov's most trusted asset in the country. That's why Krichkov had set Lukhanov up with Robert Maxwell as his minder when they opted to do business with the media giant. The decision to open the Soviet sphere to Maxwell had been made by Lukhanov uh, to be his point man. And it made perfect sense as Bulgaria was at the forefront of the efforts to open the Soviet bloc to Western capital, both legal and illicit. Maxwell, under Luke Akhanov's supervision, was given a special account at the Bank of Bulgaria. This account was to be used to set up Krichkov's hundreds of front companies on behalf of the KGB. It was also here that the illicit money the KGB generated from arms and drugs trafficking would be laundered. Simeon Mogliovich used the Bulgarian Cooperative Bank to launder money through during these years as well. Uh, Maxwell eventually took that one over during the late 1980s. So let's pause now and consider the implications of all of this. So it's my contention that by the late 1970s at least, aware that the Soviets were increasingly dipping their toes and smuggling to prop up a failing economy, a decision was made. The West would enable the Soviet security services to take a seat at the vast table of funding generated by the criminal underground. Here, they would find all the money they needed to prepare for the post-communist era. But more importantly, from the West's point of view, it was here that they would be compromised and corrupted. The rigid discipline of the Soviet state, and especially within the security services, would be eroded through criminal activity. And this, in theory, would make them more compliant to Western wishes. Melanie, you say? Well, consider the following. I'm uh, getting this from a work entitled Ukraine in the Crossfire by Chris Kasper de Polig, I believe. Sorry if I'm getting that wrong, but uh, it's an excellent book, and the last name is D-E space P-L-O-E-G. Uh, I definitely recommend it if you want some insight into the current conflict in Ukraine. Uh, but anyway, this addresses how the first President Bush reacted to the collapse of the Soviet Union circa 1980. Nevertheless, U.S. President Bush was not pleased and wished to seize what he saw as an opportunity to advance on the Soviets. To hell with that, he told the German Chancellor. We prevailed and they didn't. We can't let the Soviets clutch victory from the jaws of defeat. As Bush sought to claim his Cold War victory, his aims suddenly became more feasible. The Soviet Union's economy was collapsing and a strategy arose to, quote, bribe the Soviets out, end quote. West Germany was given 15 billion Dutch marks to the Soviet government, and this is how, in essence, the limits on NATO expansion were both promised and later unpromised, not on the basis of morality, but due to power dynamics in the negotiating process. Uh, Sorate elaborates, this is a quote uh, within the book from a report on this particular meeting, which was in 1990. 
In May 1990, Jack Matlock, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow, reported that Gorbachev was starting to look, quote, less like a man in control and more like an embattled leader, end quote. The, quote, signs of crisis, end quote, he wrote in his cable from Moscow, quote, are legion. Simple rising crime rates, proliferating anti-regime demonstrations, burgeoning separatist movements, deteriorating economic performance, and... A slow, uncertain transfer of power from the party to the state and from the center to the preferary, end quote. Moscow would have a hard time addressing these domestic problems without the help of foreign aid and credit, which meant that it might be willing to compromise. The question was whether West Germany could provide such assistance in a manner that would allow Gorbachev to avoid looking as though he was being bribed into accepting a reunified Germany and NATO with no meaningful restrictions on the alliance's movement eastward. Call accomplished this difficult task in two bursts. It's Herman Call, by the way, the uh, German chancellor. First, in a bilateral meeting with Gorbachev in July 1990, and then in a set of emotional follow-up phone calls in September 1990, Gorbachev ultimately gave his assent to a united Germany and NATO in exchange for face-saving measures, such as a four-year grace period for removing Soviet troops and some restrictions on both NATO troops and nuclear weapons in on the former East German territory. He also received 12 billion Deutschmarks to construct housing for the withdrawing Soviet troops and another 3 billion in interest-free credit. What he did not receive were any formal guarantees against NATO expansion. Another MIT study by Joshua R. Itzokwitz, uh Schifferson suggests, however, that this chain of events does not actually suggest an agreement, does actually suggest an agreement with NATO, against NATO expansion. Although it is true that no formal guarantees were issued, this is fairly standard practice in international diplomacy, and especially so during the Cold War. For example, even the infamous Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved through an informal agreement. Schifferson documents how American and West German officials quite consistently gave the impression that the deal against NATO expansion was actually on the table all the while until the final reunification of Germany. As such, the formal agreement that no non-German troops would be deployed in East Germany could be understood as a confirmation of such a broader informal understanding. Schifferson shows, moreover, that U.S. policymakers were consciously deceitful, privately making plans for the U.S. and NATO dominance in the region while suggesting otherwise during the negotiations. Such deceit was no small matter. Then U.S. National Security Advisor Brent Scarcroft recognized that a reunified Germany within NATO would be, quote, the Soviet Union's worst nightmare, and, quote, rip the heart out of the Soviet security system. U.S. assessments even considered the possibility that the Soviet Union would trigger a, quote, World War III scenario to prevent this outcome. As Gorbachev code uh, called during the negotiations, when you say that NATO would be would disintegrate without Germany, this also applies to the Warsaw Pact, end quote. All right, guys, so... I also want to point out, I believe Krichkov uh, was present during this 1990 venture to uh, the United States as well for these negotiations with Bush. And again, this is a crucial aspect in a lot of the intrigues currently playing out in regards to NATO expansion. And again, it's important to emphasize that we got the Soviets effectively to agreed to dismantle the Soviet Union through bribery. This is 
more or less effectively what they're even acknowledging there. And again, these were funds that were almost surely not spent on building housing for returning Soviet troops, but were probably siphoned off to these mystery accounts, which is another reason why it would be intriguing if Krichkov was a part of these uh, endeavors. But anyway, let's get back here to Bulgaria. So anyway, who was better to manage all of this corruption than Robert Maxwell? He of dubious loyalty and atop a vast criminal empire stretching across several continents. Well, it's commonly commonly believed that the KGB and the DS were behind uh, Georgi uh, Markov's assassination, as well as Zakovia's sudden death and uh, Mutachev's downfall. The role of British intelligence cannot be discounted in any of this either. Lyudmila Zivakova was many things, but few doubted her Bulgarian patriotism. And her strong spiritual bent, especially against an atheistic regime, uh, greatly implies she had principles beyond money. Hence, the kind of wholesale corruption Bulgaria endured under future Prime Minister Lukanov uh, likely would not have happened on her watch. Thus, even if Ziakova and the circle around her were sometimes British assets, they surely would not have been willing to take things to their logical endgame in the fashion that Lukanov did. When all was said and done, he and Maxwell were able to loot over $2 billion from Bulgaria alone into Western bank accounts. And certainly none of it ended up in the coffers of the Daily Mirror's pension fund, which Maxwell was also looting hundreds of millions of dollars from during this time. Indeed, very little of the money Maxwell acquired in these efforts has ever been recovered. Thus, the possibility that the British played a role in these events cannot be discounted as their own banks profited immensely from these efforts to say nothing of Maxwell's robust arms trade. But we've been another player in all this, too, that's important. Uh, and it involves good old Kroll Associates, the infamous private intelligence firm closely linked to 9-11 that has been described as a corporate CIA. Kroll Associates were hired by Captain Bob during early 1991 to guard his financial empire from various banks, then demanding repayment on the uh, loans that he had taken from them. At roughly the same time, i.e. 1991, Kroll was hired by the Russian government to locate all the money that had been siphoned off by Krichtov for his uh, KGB front companies. Kroll was also later brought in to investigate blunt diamonds in the Angolan conflict, which we will get to here in a second, and also the whole thing with 9-11. Needless to say, none of these investigations turned up much, so Kroll seems to be a major player in all this as a whitewash instrument, and again, another uh, significant player in the whole private intelligence, private military field, though obviously they're much more in the former. Anyway, the Cold War more or less ends in 1991, if not 1989. Regardless, Russia dramatically accelerates the process of privatization, just as Krichkov wanted to, and 
apparently which Gates had agreed to. We all know how this played out and the criminal atmosphere it created. But how did the national security states of the U.S. and Russia view these developments in regards to their respective plans? That's the real question. Well, by the early 1990s, both the West and the Russians seem to have been getting the results that they planned for. Under Gorbachev, the Soviet Union began the process of collapse during 1989 and finished up by the end of 1991. Supposedly, it was the end of history. It's pretty clear the Anglo-American establishment was pleased with how things were playing out in Russia and the former Soviet Union, much as they were with developments in Africa during the same time. These regions, along with Western Asia on the whole, were the final frontiers for Western capitalism. And now... We had full access to them. And in Russia, it probably goes without saying, by getting a drunken buffoon like Yeltsin to head the state, it was an unbelievable coup. And that's probably what led us to getting a little greedy at that point. Both Yeltsin and his administration were thoroughly corrupt to the core. They were more than happy to support the wholesale looting of Russia and the former Soviet Union throughout the 90s. And the once mighty KGB had been greatly reduced and compromised by ties to the criminal underworld. I don't know that they could have, I don't know that the US circles could have asked for a better outcome during the 90s, quite frankly. And indeed, by 1995, the West was working through a small circle of Russian oligarchs on what was essentially a bid to stage a total takeover of the Russian economy. All right, so to describe this effort, I'm going to return to Good Old Putin's People by Catherine Belton, which, again, I will remind all of you, Anton Surikov, a future founder of Far West Limited, was a major source of. All right, so from pages 191 and 193. When Putin took over the presidency, the might of the Yeltsin-era oligarchs was still strong. The Moscow businessmen had been propelled through the first market experiments of the perestroika era with the support of the KGB uh, with the support of the KGB had by then long broken free from the former masters to emerge at the top of Russian power. They'd taken over a considerable swath of the country's economy when they took advantage of Yeltsin's vulnerability on the eve of the 1996 elections and persuaded him to hand over the crown jewels of the nation's industry. The loans for shares auctions had consolidated nearly 50% of Russia's wealth in the hands of seven businessmen. While Yeltsin was left ever more dependent and weak, he deepened in part, he depended in part on funds from the Ogolarks to secure his reelection in 1996, and they'd grown used to a role where they not only supported but dictated some of the rules of the regime. An estimated $20 billion in cash had flooded into banks in the West every year since 1994. While the Yeltsin government coffers had been bled dry, the funds that ogolarks like Khodorkovsky and Berezovsky had stowed abroad, had weakened the Russian state to such a degree that Putin's KGB men argued that the country was on the brink of collapse. In the 90s, wage errors had mounted while paying taxes was almost universally avoided. 
Russia had fallen deep in debt to Western institutions such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and the $40 billion debt default, more than a third of which was to foreign creditors, had tarnished the country's finances even more. In the KGB men's uh, view, the political freedoms Yeltsin had granted to the regions had brought the country even closer to the brink. Amidst the political tumult of Yeltsin's final years, some regional governors had refused to transfer parts of their tax take to the federal government. We saw how the country was disintegrating, said Sergei Bogdankatryov, a close Putin ally who served as head of one of the remaining state oil companies, Ross and Neft, and had also been close to Primakov. What Putin took over was no more than the fragments of the state. Things had gone so far that some governors were talking about introducing their own currency. If Putin had not come and another two or three years had passed, we would not have had the Russian Federation. There would have been separate states like the Balkans. The collapse was absolutely clear to me. This is one of Putin's former KGB people talking there. Okay, so anyway... The KGB men had long been looking at the situation intently. Vladimir Yukuninin, the bluff former senior KGB officer who'd served undercover at the United Nations in New York and then taken over Bank Russia on his return to Leningrad, had prepared a study on the ownership of the Russian economy, which found that in 1998-1999, Almost 50% of the nation's gross domestic product was produced by companies owned by just eight families. If things stayed that way, then they would soon control more than 50%, says Yukonin now, nearly 20 years later. All the profits were going into private pockets. No taxes were paid. It was looting, pure and simple. Without greater state involvement, it was clear to me it was a path to nowhere. Yukonin, who'd been close to Putin since they had shared the Orzero Daka compound, said he'd handed the report with his comments to Putin soon after he took the presidency. But for Putin's security men, the Yeltsin era Ogilark's sending of cash to the West provided a useful argument for shoring up their own power base. They could claim that the dominance of the Ogolarks was a threat to national security, though it was mostly a threat to their own positions. <laughs> they saw themselves as the anointed guardians of Russia's restoration as an imperial power and believed that the resurgence of the state and their own fates were inextricably and conveniently linked. Soon after Putin's inauguration, Yukonin recalled Zbigniew Brzezinski, the Cold War-era U.S. National Security Advisor, had scoffed when discussing the cash held in overseas accounts by the Russian elite. If all the money was in the accounts in the West, he said, then whose elite was it? Russia's of the West. Brzezinski's comments had scolded the KG men's ears. It was all the more rankling to hear them from a Cold War warrior like Brzezinski, who they regarded as one of the architects of the West's efforts to dismantle the Soviet regime, end quote. And they were absolutely right. This is right around the time that Z-Big had published the Grand Chessboard, 
which has basically been the blueprint towards Russia that we have been following ever since. He was also a member of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. It played a crude role in setting that up, which was one of the successor groups, the World Anti-Communist League, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that in a future installment. And yes, the point that Zbigniew Brzezinski made there is quite accurate. Who did these oligarchs belong to? Most of the early Russian oligarchs were firmly in the U.S. camp. Okay, they had made a lot of alliances with Western business throughout this particular era in the 90s. They were largely being propped up by U.S. interests, and it may well have been leading to the balkanization of Russia. Again, I was at the 2022 Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Uh, Captives Nation event week where Madame Zelensky spoke at. I was in the same room. A lot of the next generation foreign policy circles that are continuing the work that Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a member of the Victims for Memorial Communism Foundation, had started. I can assure you guys from the comments that I heard there, breaking up Russia to the state that it was in in the Middle Ages is still the agenda of this network okay Catherine Belton is trying to make this seem like it was some far out conspiracy theory that the KGB men were getting you were coming up with this it is not in the foreign policy circles in the United States this is very much what their plan was now again I don't have any illusions about Putin's Russia or the KGB men backing him they were also criminals. They were also involved in all this kind of organized crime activity. People like Berezovsky and these other Russian oligarchs were involved with. But once again, you know, there's not really a honorable side in this. The West is basically operating through a handful of billionaires to destroy a sovereign nation through financial markets after you know, basically bribing out the officials. It's just not <laughs> something to be proud of. There's just no other way to be, to sugarcoat it, okay? So, okay, what about the Russians then? Well, Kritschkov's plan was working somewhat, but again, by the mid-90s, there was a bit of a problem with uh, the whole takeover of the economy and all this, but, you know, we'll get to those implications a little bit. But early on, it seemed to really be paying dividends. In Bulgaria alone, the first private company was founded by the security services, and within the first year alone, 90% of the private companies had been set up by the DS. We had similar you know, things playing out in East Germany, for instance, and Putin was a part of those efforts in East Germany. We'll say that. Now, as I just noted, for many Russians and other Eastern Europeans, even those in the security services, their first exposure to capitalism was via organized crime. And for that exposure, I'm going to turn to an excellent work called McMafia, a Journey Through the Global Criminal Underworld by Misha Glenny, British author. This is an excellent account, and it's it's much uh, less biased as well in terms of depicting Putin's Russia than uh, Putin's people is, to put it mildly. Uh, so anyway, here. Appealing to the police for protection was futile. 
The police force, uh, traditionally the most imposing front line of the Russian state's authority, was giving up the ghost. It had neither the intellectual nor the financial resources to adapt to the emergence of capitalism. And so the state, slowly but monumentously, started to concede its monopoly on violence to the so-called Grupa Kravake, or street gangs. By far from being harbingers of anarchy, these groups of men... Afghan veterans, street toughs, martial art experts, former KGB officers, every one of them terrifying, were the indispensable midwives of capitalism. Businessmen like Tarasova understood that the Grubakovica were in fact privatized law enforcement agencies. In contrast with their state-run counterparts such as the Interior Ministry, the MVD, and the KGB, these flexible self-organized gangs had an instinctly instinctive appreciation that there was a vibrant demand for their quote protection or insurance services among the new business class instead of paying taxes to the state which had no idea how to tax the new small-scale private enterprises businessmen willingly handed over between 10 and 30 percent of their turnover to local thugs who would emerge in exchange that they could continue trading free from the violence of the group Kravia, working on behalf of their competitors we are prepared to work with the racket because it charges 10% of businessmen from Omsk noted at the time, and the state takes 90% in taxes and even more in fines. All right, so soon many of the Grupakovica organized themselves into private security firms. So continuing on here with good old McMafia. By 1999, more than 11,500 registered private security firms employing more than 800,000 people had established. Of these, almost 200,000 had license to carry arms. The Russian Interior Ministry has estimated that there was at least half again as many firms that remained unregistered. Not surprisingly, this proliferation in arms translated into a proliferation in murders and assassinations. By 1995, thousands of murders were being committed throughout Russia every year, and especially in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Ekaterinburg, and other major centers of commerce. The cost of taking out a rival in 1997 was $7,000 for a client without bodyguards and up to $15,000 for one with bodyguards. Paradoxically, if you were not involved in business or the protection industry, you were more safer in Moscow than in most other cities. Solvencio was one of the safest places in Russia, explained Alexei uh, Makin, Moscow's first fatuous chronicler of organized crime. You wouldn't get mugged there because this was the home base of the Slavonyanskyal gang, and they were generally proud of their origins. This was the one, too, that Simeon Mogliavich, by the way, was connected to for a time, and um, also which ended up in the conflict with the Chesnian separatists, which we'll be hearing a lot more from. Anyway, uh, continuing on here with McMafia, the previous quote was from page 62. Now I'm going to go in here to pages 67 and 69. The Oglyarch's rape of Russian uh, Russia's assets enjoyed the pride of place in the boom of the global shadow economy during the 1990s. Not only did these men succeed in turning Russia upside down, but their actions had a huge economic and social impact in the United States and on countries throughout Western Europe, in the Mediterranean, above all Cyprus and Israel, in the Middle East and Africa, and in the Far East. 
Unable to even claim that they were helping to police the transition to capitalism, as protection rackets undoubtedly were, they have had an overall influence more destructive than most of Russian organized crime. The organized crime bosses who survived the 90s settled into Putin's Russia. Several have Interpol red notices on them wanted for crimes committed in Western Europe or the United States, but the government in Moscow shows no inclination to extradite them. Sergei Mikhailov, who insisted that he is a legitimate businessman who conducts much of his work now in China, chasing down alleged mobsters of a global mafia is low on Beijing's priority list. Other mobsters now make their living brokering major gas and oil deals between Russia and its neighbors in Western Europe, recording handsome profits for their clients and themselves. Many remain in the opaque world of private security. President Putin has restored the power and prestige of the KGB, and its novel guise is the FSB, where he spent most of his career before his unexpected political elevation as Russia's prime minister in the late 1990s. <clears throat> Under Putin, the Kremlin had clipped the wings of several of the most powerful oligarchs, From exile in the West or from inside prison oligarchs like Boris Berovsky and Mikhail Kardivovsky warned that the new president is the reincarnation of Stalin. But he isn't. He has fashioned a novel system that brings together aspects of capitalism and Soviet socialism, market authoritarianism. The Ogilark's desperate attempt to portray Putin as the new Stalin seek to conceal the primary responsibility they bear for the mess they and Russia find themselves in after their venality reached unprecedented levels in the late 1990s. After the period of easy money, the Ogilark's could offer such attractive rewards that they were able to buy whoever they wanted. Corruption and organized crime are intimately linked. The former spawns the latter with a resolute determinism. More directly, the Ogilarks needed to pursue, purchase the services offered by the private protection agency or mafia to protect their interests. When senior members of the KGB slash FSB and the MVD, the Interior Ministry, observed how their influence was sinking as the wealth and power of the Ogilarks grew, many decided to switch horses. The Russian security services had experienced fluctuating fortunes since the Gorbachev period. Some members were establishing companies abroad as covers for industrial espionage and money laundering. Others were less fortunate, and in 1992, the KGB's financial situation deteriorated to such an extent that officers were forced to sell light bulbs and toilet paper stolen from the headquarters at the Labankia prison, a sacrilegious sacrilegious surely as the priest making candlesticks from saint peter's in rome almost all the major oligarchs and business empires started to employ former kg men to advise them on security vladimir guinsky the media magnet and one of the most influential early oligarchs before he fell putin appointed philip Bovkov as the boss of his security. Bovkov achieved notoriety in the 1980s as the former head of the KGB's Fifth Directorate, which was responsible for combating dissidents in the Soviet Union. These days, everyone is doing it, Artem Tarasov told me in his Moscow office. I was talking to my old employee, Victor Beckelsberg, you know, the one who bought the Farabigi eggs for Russia, who's one of the men behind the oil consortium TNK-BP. He was telling me the other day that he currently has 24 former KGB generals on his payroll. The death of Alexander Livinkinosko, 
the former senior KGB officer poisoned in his London exile in late 2006, revealed how confused the relationship between the KGB and private security had become. In the late 1990s, Litvinensko himself had been assigned to protect Ogolark Boris Berezovskia while still working for the KGB, and one of the prime suspects in his murder was another former KGB officer who ran his own private security firm and had once provided protection to Berezovskia. Through such characters, the Ogolarks were in a position to exercise influence over the residual forces of law and order in what is known as the, quote, deep state, the mighty forces of political influence that operate behind the scenes, even in obstinable chaos. It went further, though. The integration of high-ranking KGB and MVD personnel into the paid retinas of the Ogolarks triggered a, the privatization of Russian security forces. During the 1990s, these two iconic institutions of Soviet power became simply another competing private law enforcement agency. In one fundamental sense, there was no difference from the Slavonovskia Bratvia, it's uh, the big gang from um, the northern part of Russia. Their services were available to the highest bidder. As a consequence, different branches of Russia's security services would find themselves fighting against each other on behalf of warring Ogolarks. On December 2nd, 1994, Vladimir Gunansky noticed that he was being followed by a group of large, intimidating masked men as he drove to his office on the Novi Arbat. They also housed the offices of his chief political sponsor, Yuri Lozkov, the mayor of Moscow and a political rival of Boris Yeltsin. As the owner of NTV, the most popular independent television station, Gusinsky uh, was among the most influential Ogolarks and the one who excited jealous outbursts among his peers. Boris Berezovsky, the first among equals in the Ogolarchy, persuaded President Yeltsin that Gusinsky needed to be taught a lesson. In late November, an article in the pro-Yeltsin newspaper, The Snow is Falling, had claimed that Gajanski's most company was planning to force its way into power. If this was a shot across the bows, December 2nd witnessed a full-scale broadside. The masked men started roughing up Gajanski's bodyguards in the Ogark's car park. Watching from his office and feeling increasingly alarmed, Gajanski was calling his contacts inside the counterintelligence unit of the KGB. These guys turned up and a Rosbruka shootout erupted, but before blood was spilled, however, one of the KGB realized that their opponents were from the same presidential security service. They decided to withdraw. The more powerful the Ogilar became, the more demanding, damaging the rivalry. They both parodied and accentuated the rivalries that existed in the Russia's security forces, end quote. And this brings up another interesting point about this that uh, we may get into a little bit in some of the latter installments, but... Uh, as we look at the composition of Far West Limited more, it was primarily made up of veterans of um, the Soviet Union's different military intelligence services. Whereas conversely, it seems that the clique around Putin was largely comprised of ex-KGB men. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions with all of this, but um, it is an interesting dynamic that how much of this might have been partly driven by a rivalry between uh, the KGB and Russian military intelligence as well. So another factor in all of this. But anyway, it's interesting to note also how closely this situation paralleled developments in South Africa as apartheid was coming to an end. 
So again, I already covered that in length in one of the installments of the International Fascism series, which link has been provided in the description. But in brief, much like in Russia and the former Soviet satellites, once apartheid came to an end, a litany of highly trained former intelligence and military and law enforcement personnel suddenly found themselves unemployed. And like their Soviet counterparts, they were master smugglers. Like the Soviet Union, apartheid South Africa was overrun with sanctions by the West from the 1970s onward. This made it difficult to procure both military supplies as well as advanced technologies from the West. The latter was a major issue for the Soviets as well. That's why Captain Bob had so much influence there. Again, his expertise was smuggling technology. Anyway, uh, and like their Soviet counterparts, the South African security services set up a litany of front companies to skirt embargoes during the 1980s. And in the process, like their Soviet counterparts, they became experts in trafficking. So it's fascinating in this context to see how sanctions can force entire nations to embark to embrace black markets and criminal activities among their security services and the long-term effects that they have on them. And again, you know, I'm not trying to justify the Soviet Union or apartheid South Africa. They were both brutal dictatorships. But once again, the bulk of the people in these countries who suffered from the sanctions were the ethnic minorities, the Africans and apartheid South Africans, and apartheid South Africa and the different ethnic minorities throughout the Soviet Union. The whites in South Africa and the Communist Party hierarchy did not really experience much hardship from these sanctions. And in point of fact, many of them ultimately picked up a lot of invaluable skills in terms of organized crime and black market activity from the sanctions. So basically it perpetuates the suffering of the common people while further criminalizing a regime that in many cases is already authoritarian but to return to the south african security forces many ended up establishing their own private security firms some were even full-blown private military companies such as the legendary executive outcomes its chief successor in Saracen International, which ended up working with Eric Prince by around 2010, and its principal rival, Aranus International. Again, uh, the British were a big part of this as well. British PMCs like the defunct Sandline International and its successor, Aegis, had their origins in this milieu also. And like their counterparts in Russia and Eastern Europe, many of these private military companies and security firms would become deeply entwined in the litany of criminal activity. And notably, this included drugs and arms trafficking, but several of the PMCs may have been involved in smuggling components for nuclear weapons and especially chemical and biological weapons. As we shall see, it is here again that there are parallels between many of Far West Limited's activities uh, and some of the South African ones and how disturbing they are. It's also interesting to note that uh, the South African security services appear to have been the first in the Western Bloc beneficiaries of the so-called Bulgarian connection. So anyway, in point of fact, it's likely that the inspiration from Far West, uh, for Far West, actually came from the South African firms. And now I want to quote briefly from a work here called The Third Barbarossa that we've used extensively as a source for this. Uh, and this, in turn, was actually quoting from a 2004 article uh, by the son of Ernst Henry, who was a big uh, Soviet intelligence analyst. 
uh, the article is called You Can't Leave Why Russia is Losing the CIS, which you also can't find online anymore. But anyway, it quotes uh, now Western states and offices, uh, now Western state offices and private companies have got the hang of using the even the Russians themselves against the interests of Russia. Take, for example, the company Far West, founded by former GRU officers Filin Levinstev and Surikov. It all started relatively harmlessly. In the late 1990s, one of the South African firms tried to get into the diamond business in Angola. But due to the lack of skills to work with local officials accustomed to the socialist order, things were not going well for the South Africans. But then one of the firms came up with the idea of inviting Likhnesev, uh, a former Soviet advisor in Angola, to help. The experience of cooperation with recent enemies turned out to be so profitable for the Soviet special services that they soon began working in Colombia, Afghanistan, Kosovo, and Iraq. All right, guys. Now, there are a few candidates for what this PMC could have been. The document, Third Barbarossa, seems to imply it was uh, Meteoric Technical Solutions, which is often abbreviated as MTS. So this PMC also turns up in the Wonga coup in 2004. This was the attempt to overthrow the government of Ecuadorian Guinea in 2004 that famously implicated Mark Thatcher, the son of Margaret, the longtime British prime minister. It also involved a, uh, oh, was it a Scots Royal Guard? He might have been a Special Air Services veteran too, named Simon Mann, and other figures linked to executive outcomes, though the PMC, that one, executive outcomes, had no formal involvement in the coup. Rather, it was MTS that was used to recruit personnel for the coup. Now, I haven't been able to find out much about this meteoric uh, PMC, and in fact, from what I can tell, it wasn't established until... Uh, 2003. But it's interesting to note that another PMC also went by the abbreviation of MTS, and it happened to be linked to the smuggling of chemical and biological war weapons. All right, so I'm going to quote now from uh, The Darkest Side of Politics, Volume 2, State Terrorism, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Religious Extremism, and Organized Crime by the great Jeffrey M. Bale. Uh, actually one of Ed Kaufman's favorite parapolitical works as well. It's got an excellent section on the boonies. Uh, so anyway, this is taken from pages 54 and 55. Moreover, as recently as the summer of 2002, other coastling personnel were approached by various foreign parties seeking to obtain chemical, biological weapons material. On two occasions, Dr. Dan Goosen, a former RL scientist now engaged in monitoring biological weapons for the National Intelligence Association in South Africa, was asked to provide coast-related biological materials that had supposedly been destroyed to foreign parties. In the first instance, he willingly provided a 5-milliliter sample of goat serum used in the anthrax diagnostic agent for livestock and a two milliliter sample of freeze-dried E. coli ger genetically modified with the gene coding of a Clostridium perfidious toxin to a former CIA officer named Robert A. Zolke and his former handler, Donald G. Mays, an ex-U.S. intelligence contract operative who spent years functioning as a, quote, independent arms dealer. The precise nature of the second perspective deal is less clear. 
According to some witnesses, Goosen was asked to provide anthrax bacteria and other BW agents to a group of, quote, Germans in exchange for $20 million. He then became as suspicious as soon as he learned that the, quote, Germans were really Arabs, including a Qatari who worked at the Saudi embassy, and he opted out of the deal and told the National Intelligence Agency's superiors. According to other sources, Goosen was the target of a South African police sting operation. A phony sheik approached him and offered to pay him $150 million for samples of anthrax bacteria in the aforementioned serum, as well as other items. Goosen was unwilling to provide such material to Arabs, who he feared might endeavor to use them as acts, in acts of terrorism and therefore reported the incident to the National Intelligence Agency. At the moment, this later version appears to be more accurate. In both deals, the middleman between Goosen and the, quote, foreigners was a right-winger and retired South African Defense Force Major General associated with the Civilian Coordination Bureau named Tai Minar, who in 1989 established a company called Military Technical Services, MTS, that had links to the powerful South African recruitment agents mercenary recruitment agency executive outcomes. Shortly after the collapse of the second deal, Menar suddenly died officially of a heart attack. According to his girlfriend, his peculiar discoloration and bloating symptoms prior to his death suggest that he may have been assassinated with some sort of poison, but this cannot be confirmed since relatives asked that his body be cremated and no autopsy was performed. These two examples may represent only the tip of a much larger iceberg of secret efforts by foreigners to acquire South African CBW materials. All right, so the third Barbarossa also mentions that uh, the infamous Ukrainian arms trafficker, uh, Victor Bout, was involved in these activities in Angola with the Far West team or what became the Far West team during the mid-1990s. Now, I've been able to confirm that one of the individuals he was working with was a uh, ex-South African Defense Force and Executive Outcomes veteran named Fred Rindell, R-I-N-D-E-L. Uh, Executive Outcome apparently fired him uh, after they caught him trafficking blood diamonds, an activity uh, that he went on to assist Bout with. For those of you unaware, by the way, Victor Bout, he was just recently uh, released from a U.S. prison in an uh, exchange uh, with the Russian authorities. Bout was actually the inspiration for the Nicolas Cage character in Lord of War, which is a fantastic movie. I definitely urge all you guys to check it out if you haven't done so yet. Anyway, Rendell was working with an unnamed PMC in conjunction with Bout in Angola during the mid-1990s. Uh, so now I'm going to quote from a really interesting book here called Executive Outcomes Against All Odds that was written by Evan Barlow. And this was the founder of Executive Outcome. So you're getting this kind of straight from the horse's mouth here with some of this stuff. It's an interesting work. It's definitely a whitewash in a lot of ways, but there are some, um, some very compelling subjects that are brought up in this account here. All right, so picking up here from pages uh, 439 through uh, 440 here. On February 22, 2001, during a sitting in the UN Security Council in which the arms and diamond industry in Africa were discussed, the speaker, Mrs. Lee of Singapore, stated, quote, 
Clearly, the arms and diamond industries respond a very profitable war economy such that the diamond industry, which was the resource for the arms, has in turn generated an arms industry to protect the diamonds. It is a stalemate that has a high price, violence for economic control. We are here today to review the recommendations of the mechanism on the effectiveness of the implementation of many sanctions against NIDA and to consider the appropriate actions against sanctions busters. In the case of diamond sanctions, modes of circumvention similar to those being used in Sierra Leone sanctions are described in the AVR report appear to have been used to conceal the true origins of diamonds from Unita mines. These included the potential loopholes found in the Swiss tax-free zones. However, a serious allegation was made in paragraph 181 of the mechanism report that well-known clients of De Beers are knowingly buying rough diamonds from Unida. And this, this and other questionable methods uncovered by the mechanisms require further investigation as to the validity of the findings. On the issue of sanctions busting, the report mentions familiar names. On the use of the aircraft from sanctions busting, Victor Bout, Victor Bout was, has been identified as a key player, as has his air cess. The countries named in the report as being countries of origins for the arms exports to Unita and those accused of um, complicity in permitting the forging of end-user certificates for arms exports should be addressed in the issues raised. So these guys were all implicated in this here. Going in here to pages 442, 443, this is from a follow-up report, by the way, that was issued in 2009 by the UN, 2005 by the UN here, getting further into Rendell's role specifically in these activities. So anyway, the report stated, upon completion of the investigation, the panel of experts presented a report broadly depicting the methodology resorted to by UNITA in building up a significant military capability in breach of Security Council sanctions. The report highlighted the role of arms suppliers based in Bulgaria and Ukraine in supplying military equipment to UNETA. It also noted the role until 1997 of countries such as Zaire and later Togo and Burkina Faso in the provision of the proper documentation required for the purchase of arms that is end-user certificates as well as facilities for the storage and transit of the weapons. Finally, the report cited the active participation of individuals acting as arms brokers in the procurement chain. These are pilots with military training and combat experience, often from Eastern Europe and South Africa, or Southern Africa, who as individuals and entrepreneurs are prepared to undertake such activities. Individuals such as Johnny Pereira have been identified as pilots who in the past have flown sanctions busting missions in Angola, landing heavy cargo planes with illicit cargoes in war conditions and breaking international embargoes such as the one on Angola requires more than individual effort. It takes an internationally organized network of individuals, well-funded, well-connected, and well-versed in brokering and logistics with the ability to move illicit cargo around the world without raising the suspicion of the law or with the ability to deal with obstacles. One organization, headed or at least to all appearances outwardly controlled by Eastern Europeans, Victor Bout is such an organization. 
So continue a little further down here in the report. The mechanism has established that the broker known as Watson, who was named in the report of the panel of experts as Ronnie De Decker, is in fact Fred Rendell, a former officer of the South African Defense Force. The mechanism brought photographs of several men to Angola. General Bendua, who had previously identified Watson as one of the brothers of the De Deckers, was asked if he could recognize any of the men as Watson. He unhesitantly recognized Rendell as Watson in front of witnesses. He failed to recognize Ronnie De Decker, who was named as Watson by the panel of experts. The mechanism accepts the identification as Randall, Randall as Watson. Rendell was contacted by the mechanism and has admitted business dealings with Yanita. The account given by the expert panel of the Dedecker's diamond dealings with Yanita stands. Fred Rendell and the Dedecker brothers set up a Yuna, Yunta diamond sales system in 1993, selling about one-third of Yanita's diamonds, according to Rendell. Rendell was given the diamonds by Joanna Simvelia. The, brother the brothers evaluated the worth of the diamonds and accompanied him, and Rendell would return with the money and sales documents. As previously publicly admitted by the Decker brothers, those diamonds were sold to De Beers Diamonds Buying Offices in Antwerp and Tel Aviv. So it's really important here to note that De Beers was a major player in all of this as well. All right, so even Barlow, the EO founder and head, uh, was convinced that Rendell was merely a frontman for another veteran of the uh, South African security services and one who had his own TMC that had been active in Angola since the mid-1990s. So we're going to continue here with executive outcome against all odds. This is uh, from page 250 through 252. Uh, Laferis, who was one of uh, Barlow's main EO contractors, showed me a letter written in early January, this would have been I think, around 1994, containing several false and scathing statements about executive outcome. The source of the documents was a friend of his who worked for a mid-rand-based company that specialized in political analysis and strategy. According to Laferas, his friend was also very closely associated with both military intelligence and the Department of Foreign Affairs. The document had been written on the letterhead of a company called Strategic Concepts Limited addressed to Peter Gush of the Anglo-American Corporation and signed by one Mr. Sean Cleary, a gentleman I had been wondering and warned about for a long time. In addition to his widely spurious claims about executive outcome, clearly also expressed concern about our presence in Angola and stated that we should be forced out of the country as soon as possible. I was wondering why Anglo-American, which I should interject is the other big diamond uh, provider in South Africa next to De Beers, would even have been interested in Cleary's letter about us, or for that matter, concerned about our activities in Angola, as it is as it had not as it had no known mining operations there. I had a lot to learn. LaFerris suggested I take over his source as an agent and arrange to bring him into my office at 2300 hours that night. I couldn't help but wondering how long clearly had been advi advising Gush on EO4, and if it was this type of console that he had uh, forced Bill Pefe of the 
Debsuana to terminate my services. Nyko Palm inserted a new tape and archivered video recorder, checked the cameras and microphones that covered every nook and cranny of our boardroom, and locked the cabinets that housed the recording equipment. When Leferis arrived with his source, my surprise could not have been more complete. The informant turned out to be a former 32nd Battalion platoon commander who I had met in Angola several years earlier. Johanna Smith had lost a leg during a bunker-clearing operation that had also cost the lives of two of his men. I clearly remembered our first meeting. At the time, I had been briefly attached to a 32nd uh, Battalion company as a sapper, and I had warned Johanna that a booby trap could turn a bunker into a death trap if it was approached incorrectly. Despite my suggestions about what the correct approach should have been, it was a booby trap that caught Johanna in his platoon. He later served as a junior military attache in Angola and afterwards became a military intelligence liaison's officer with UNIDA. Good to see you, Johanna, I said, trying to hide my surprise as I shook his hand. My God, even, he said, laughing. I had never thought I'd be coming to see you at your offices. Just imagine that. I showed him to a seat that was precisely positioned for the best possible video and audio coverage. After exchanging pleasantries and chatting about the old 32nd Battalion days, the war in Angola, the politics in South Africa, and so on, and the greater world, Laferis excused himself, saying that he had to catch a flight to Luanda the next day. Laferis tells me that you had access to a lot of information about us. How did you come up with this? I asked. I worked for a mid-rang company called Strategic Concepts. I'm sort of a partner. It's run by Sean Cleary, a formerly of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Military Intelligence. He left there rather suddenly, but he has retained some powerful foreign affairs and military intelligence connections and now acts as a political advisor to some very high up people, some influential corporations and several Western governments. And of course, UNITA. We also provide strategic and media planning if necessary. Johanna gave me his business card, which showed that he also worked for a company called Omega Support Limited. They had offices in Gibraltar and Stratcon House in Midrand. So why the concern about what is going on in Angola? Why is clearly lying to Anglo-American about us? You've upset a lot of people, Johanna laughed. Not only have you made the South African Defense Force look incompetent, you've also created problems for people who have serious business interests with old Johannes, Samvia, especially the guys at Military Intelligence's DST. They've invested millions in Samvia and Yanita. They're getting the media to crucify you so they can shut you down. So, yeah, some really interesting stuff with all of this here. Um, so, okay, to put a little bit of perspective in this, obviously South Africa had been involved in a guerrilla struggle in Angola with uh, Cuba basically fighting a proxy war for the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the 1980s as the war was running down. And the principal sponsor that the West and South Africa was backing was this unit of force that I keep referring to. And um, once the conflict came to an end, uh, basically, Yunita and the the communist group in Angola had continued the struggle, you know, now specifically for the diamond mines. So around 1994, Executive Outcome was hired, but they ended up backing the former communist group in their quest to control the diamond mines in South Africa. 
which irked a lot of people in South Africa's security service because they have been backing UNITA since, you know, I think like the late 70s or something like that. So Shine clearly was part of uh, this network of people in the South African intelligence community who initially were working against Elon Barlow and Executive Outcome and then tried to uh, set up kind of a rival body about this. All right. So on the whole, Shine clearly seems to have been working as an agent for the powerful Anglo-American diamond cartel throughout Africa during the mid-1990s. So I'm just going to do one more quote here uh, from Executive Outcomes Against All Odds um, in regards to this. So this is from page 438. Uh, on 7 February 1996, Johanna Smith handed me a document titled Strategic Review in Gola 1996, which she claimed clearly had just finalized for Sambia. The document stated its intent of a strategic review to allow for the development of a realistic goal and subsidiary objectives for the organization of UNITA and an effective strategy to achieve them. The document also detailed how President Nelson Mandela and Deputy President Tebo Mibike could be manipulated to help UNITA achieve these aims. According to Smith, clearly was equally alarmed about our presence in Sierra Leone and tended to see that executive outcome was forced to close its doors, especially as the company's activity in Angola negatively impacted his major diamond buying clients, including De Beers Diamond Corporation. So, yeah. Thing here a bit with the uh, book. In March 2000, the South African media finally made tentative moves to expose what had really happened in Angola. It averred that Joe and Ronnie De Decker of De Decker Diamonds stood accused of having broken UN sanctions opposed against Janetta by trading weapons and diamonds with them, and that they had sold the quote conflict diamonds to De Beers Consolidated. De Beers was quick to deny the accusations. They also explained clearly continued. They all this also explained clearly's continued letters to Gush, and his extreme concern regarding executive outcomes presence in Angola. So clearly seems to have been the guy who was behind a lot of these activities with the blood diamonds, and Barlow. You know, again, keep in mind going back here, Fred Rendell, the other former uh, ex South African Defense Force guy, who was also playing a big role in the diamond smuggling. Originally, people thought he was one of the Decker brothers, who were also a big part of this network, working with Victor Bone about. So. On page 444, this is another uh, observation that Barlow has about all this. I finally knew the identity of Watson, the man who had helped supply UNETA with the surface-to-air missiles that had targeted aircraft being flown by executive outcome pilots. It was inconceivable that Fred Rendell, a former military attache, would not have known Shine Clearly and Rusty Evans, the Director of General and Foreign Affairs. Indeed, Johanna Smith had on numerous occasions told me that they had a close relationship. So, clearly seems to have been the guy who was really running a lot of these activities. And this is the milieu that Far West Limited grew out of. So, keep Mr. Clearly and strategic concepts in mind, as this is not the last time you're going to be hearing about him. Uh, but I digress. Uh, we've already given you guys a lot of good stuff here uh, at this point. But again, I want to also emphasize the role that the British played in this. Anglo-American Corporation and De Beers are also closely tied to the British elites. 
and again you kind of see how in the aftermath of the cold war a lot of british elites through the use of these private military companies and these new ogolarks were using them to snatch up all of the resources in southern africa and then eventually the rest of the continent and in a sense this was really the same blueprint that was being used later in russia and this is again the whole milieu that far west limited grew out of you know this it was founded shortly thereafter all of these activities were unfolding in southern africa so again this is definitely something that i think was in the mind of the founders of far west observing things that were going on in africa during this time frame and how it could be applied to eastern europe and russia all right I think that's enough of my blathering for one day. Senate, it's your turn now. So uh, can you give us a quick overview of Far West? Obviously, this, you know, it's not a topic that a lot of people are familiar with, though hopefully I've maybe given a little bit of the backdrop now for everybody. So what's the Reader's Digest version of this outfit? Um, okay, I'm going to start, I guess, with uh, something, yeah, I've also adapted from Third Barbarossa, though hopefully we'll talk about it. Uh, a bit more just at the end of this um this bit was written very dramatically so i'm going to try and do it justice here um okay who are far west far west are a group of individuals who at their own peril manage criminal enterprises in the 90s as agents and officers of group uh the scope and survivability of this syndicate was explained by protection provided by the top leadership of group as well as corrupt members of the president's entourage the main income of the organized crime came from the wholesale drug trade in afghan heroin and colombian cocaine uh the notion that a group of private individuals even those with corrupt ties uh, corrupt and political ties to the secret services and state bureaucracy could conduct commercial and political operations of the magnitude of Far West, like publicly blackmailing the top leadership of Russia, has even led to the theoretical notion of the existence of metagroups in the work of Peter Dale Scott. He endowed Far West with a miraculous power capable of playing the game of geopolitics. But Scott also drew a productive parallel between Far West and BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, uh, associated with Iran-Contra, I'm sure we all know. Um, although he did not draw the logical conclusion from this parallel that a metagroup could be based on individuals, but that they should be backed by government agencies, I hope today I can give you an introduction to some of the key operatives of far west from the union so from the end of the soviet union until today 
Um, okay, now at this bit, you've got to imagine. Let me set the scene. So there's dust, helicopters. Okay, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the provincial city of Shindand, Herat province, Soviet special force forces entered. Soviet special forces entered after capturing President Hafizullah Amin's palace in Kabul. A massive military base was constructed near the sea. Um, I think that same base has been used by everyone uh, up until this day. Um, though officially only one combat unit of the Soviet special services were stationed in Shindand. The KGB operational detachment, Kapati 1, uh, rumors of a frostbitten GRU special group spread throughout Afghanistan. The special group was formed under the orders of a mysterious General Gusev, who's sometimes a colonel. Sometimes I've seen him once as General Colonel Gusev. So what a rank. Um, Isn't it a if I could just interject yeah. here for a minute, too. Gusev is like a really big component of all of this. And we're still trying to piece this together. But this is part of like a bigger picture that these officers came out of. So Gustav, uh, his protege appears to have been a guy called uh, Dmitry Polyakov, who is quite infamous. He was actually one of the most significant double agents for the United States during the Cold War. He was an informant for both the CIA and the FBI. Uh, he's mainly known by his FBI call name, which was Top Hat. If you've uh, gone through more than enough uh, spy books, you've probably heard references to the enigmatic Top Hat before. And this guy became a major general. I, I think at one point he was basically the highest ranking officer in the GRU or close to it. So... This was a huge, huge coup for the United States to have this guy as an asset. I mean, this would basically be like the equivalent of having the head of the DIA as a Russian asset or something like that. So this is what we have with Dmitry Polyakov. And this was the guy who was essentially the mentor slash patron to Gusev here. And... um. These two guys had an additional patron who's very interesting. His name was uh, Lieutenant General Sergei Ivyotov, I believe, Izatov, uh, who was also very interesting. This guy was the head of the GRU personnel department, and he had worked for 15 years in the apparatus of the CPSSU uh, Central Committee before uh, he was appointed there. And this is interesting because it was probably Izatov who enabled a lot of these far west guys to get into the GRU. Asina is going to tell you a lot of these guys had some really, really questionable backgrounds. They were basically from a lot of these ethnic minorities that traditionally harbored very strong um, anti-Soviet sentiments, especially individuals from Ukraine and Central Asia. And that brings me to one final point here that I want to make about Dmitry Polyakov. Dmitry Polyakov was born in Ukraine in 1920. So this is, and he came, would have come of age around 38, 39, thereabouts. This is right around what would have been 
the height of uh, the organization of Ukrainian nationalist influence in Ukraine. He would have grown up all throughout that era. I've been looking and I have no idea if he was involved with the OUNB as a teenager or maybe in his early 20s in any capacity. But it's, again, very, very interesting, to put it mildly, that he is from Ukraine, as we will see in light of some of the uh, things that come up with the members of Far West Limited. So you have these guys, this is a tall guy directing personnel in the GRU who helps set up uh, Dmitry Polyakov, possibly the biggest traitor in the history of the Soviet Union, as one of the main figures in the GRU. And he is in turn the patron of this uh, general or colonel. I think he was a general by the time uh, uh, of his demise in 1992 of this general Gustav guy. Um, so yeah, that's all very interesting. And uh, to give you guys a little bit more background on Gusev and some of the groups around him, this is taken from a document called the Aquarian Leaks, which I can't believe came out around 2005. It was supposedly the memoirs of a Colonel Alexander Golve or something like that. So it notes that on July 5th, 1981, at a railroad station, in Lugnaktia, Colonel Yuri Petrovich Gusev met the young graduates of the Faculty of Special Propaganda. He was one of the most experienced special propagandists who took part in the Berlin Crisis in 1961 and the entry of Soviet forces to Czechoslovakia in 1968. He had served in the group of Soviet forces in Germany when the Polish crisis broke out. For the purposes of of reacting appropriately to it, the leadership of the Soviet Armed Forces decided to launch an editorial office of special propaganda and northern group of forces. Yuri P. Gustav was appointed managing editor. So he was considered an expert in psychological warfare as well. And it's entirely possible that one of the individuals that he brought with him in this task force uh was also a founder of Far West Limited. Uh, we haven't been able to determine this because pretty much all of these guys used false names, the, the, um, the founders of Far West Limited, that is to say, and a lot of these other nom de plumes and so forth. But based on the research that was done in the third Barbarossa, it does seem like there's a possibility that one of the officers that was taken with Gusseb for this group might have gone on to become a founder far west and <clears throat> just one final point i want to make here in general is the significance of um psychological warfare to all of this because this is a big part of what far west was doing in addition to all the trafficking and the other stuff i had already alluded to this a bit with surkov and you know the involvement he had in putting together the book putin's people but yeah these guys were very well versed in psychological warfare uh, on the whole, and that plays into the notion of what the second Barbarossa was. So basically, this Soviet political analysis, this Ernest Henry guy, uh, saw the uh, uh, the Prague or the Hungarian crisis. No, I think it was the Prague crisis in 1956, or the Prague Spring that broke out in that year as a major turning point in how the West was going to address to try or how the West was going to try to conquer Russia or the Soviet Union then. 
So instead of doing a conventional push with troops or nuclear weapons, we would instead bombard the Soviet Union with psychological warfare and use fifth colonists to stir up instability within its heartlands. Uh, and, you know, again, he was pretty much spot on. I mean, this was basically what General Edward Lansdale was advocating that the United States do within the military during the same time frame in the late 50s when the Prague Springs was unfolding. So, yeah, and this was a model that really inspired a lot of uh, the later activities of both how the U.S. approached the Cold War and then later how the Soviets and a lot of these private military companies would go about things using a combination of psychological warfare, of fifth columnist uh, cultivated and targeted nations, and a use of special operators to manage these fifth columns. So, you know, um, well, I was I was going to say, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, and what was going on in that period that um, I mean, that's probably a carryover from the Brit from the British that that probably is that has been like their strategy for so long, because you can say you could look at Russia and say, OK, well, what makes Russia different from India as like a huge landmass that you have to efficiently navigate <laughs> yeah it, it was very much a british strategy because i mean the origins of a lot of this ultimately goes back to what the the british were doing through the ministry of economic warfare during the second world war which housed uh the political warfare executive and the special operations executive and the the soe was you know the inspiration for the special air services which is considered to be generally the first modern special operation force uh, that was assembled, but really the SOE were kind of the precursors to all of that. So, you know, they're tied together in one side of this outfit as the special operators, and the other side, you've got the political warfare executive. These are your psychological warfare officers. And yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This was a strategy that they used in World War II in the German heartlands by raising, or not heartlands, but the, the, the territory occupied by the Nazis by using psychological warfare, fifth colonists, and these operators within the region that destabilized the country. And, you know, these methods only further expanded as time went on. And once again, it also just shows that so much of this stuff has its origins with the British. And again, we're going to keep going back to this, but a lot of this just really seems to be driven by the UK more than anything else. That's one of the most fascinating aspects of all of this. So anyway, so I didn't mean to interrupt you so rudely after I finally shut up. So please continue. No, uh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, on the top of that, I mean, as a British person, I guess just sometimes, yeah, you, I mean, now after having gone, gone through this, you can kind of get what's going on. But I mean, uh, definitely for people, I guess, living in the country right now, I'm, I'm sure you guys know of all the craziness you do think well why are you guys so invested in in all of this um because i can't see the benefit yeah but when you can understand that they've been using the ukrainians now for what i mean almost a century or something like that to try to destabilize russia it's like oh well they're just doing what they've been doing for decades like it actually makes a lot more sense now like Oh. um yeah yeah but i, I guess uh like you think well uh, you would say like at what cost you know <laughs> yeah no definitely all right okay. um 
Where, yeah, where were we? Okay, Gusev, uh, mysterious General Gusev. Um, okay, so this group in Afghanistan that was under the command of Gusev, Shindand, um, they, okay, so they stopped bad smugglers, quote marks, and gave good smugglers uh, corridors and cover. Um, his recruits uh, included Filin, Sidov, Lunev, Surikov, uh, Likvintsev, um, all guys we're going to mention today, uh, and a few others which I've intentionally left off that list. Um, and these people all went to reach on um, great heights uh, in their respective careers. Uh, really, some of them are at the, the top of their game. Um, okay. Um, I think this is an important thing to add into this detail here. Um, Operation Mosquito was a secret program activated by the Americans during the Soviet war in Afghanistan. The program aimed to decompose Soviet troops with the help of drugs, an idea submitted to Reagan um, by French military intelligence, the head of French military intelligence, uh, Comte de Marinch. Uh, some of these French names are really, really tough. I know the guy we're talking about, and by the way, I think he was actually a Lissacal member as well, uh, so that's another interesting aspect of that. It wouldn't bloody surprise me, would it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Reagan gave the order to William Casey. Um, central to the operation was BCCI, um, which, again, was involved in Iran-Contra, um, the bank was backed by the biggest figures in the world, um, include behind the scenes, including uh, a man by the name of Kamal Adham and uh, Saudi billionaire and arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi. Uh, Kamal Adham was the Saudi intelligence official who served as the first director of the General Intelligence Directorate, GID, um, from 72 to 79. Uh, he also served as chairman of the Saudi Investment Bank, but he was a mentor to a person you really will need to remember for this story and probably heard of before, um, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, who would go on to become the director of GID himself and, you know, famously resigned uh, 10 days before 9-11. The operation had a Operation Mosquito, uh, that is the operation had a significant impact on soviet troops as drugs were smuggled into afghanistan and soldiers started using them leading to their physical and mental decline the operation is believed to have led to the emergence of drug trafficking networks that financed local militants um, and created a sabotage network in the territories of the USSR adjacent to the Afghan border, presumably you being used by, um, you know, talibs, mujahideen, um, en enemies. Um, almost this, all. And yeah. I mean, again, it's just fascinating too. I mean, I know you haven't quite gotten into some of the additional Ukrainian connections, but. Uh, I just need to emphasize too, as we go forward here, you know, this two, the two regions that we really uh, look at a lot with this are going to be Central Asia and that kind of Eastern European area centered around Ukraine. And 
there was a close connection between a lot of these um, separatist groups going all the way back to the anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations network, uh, which was, again, the Eastern you know, European component of the World Anti-Communist League. So it's kind of like another specter of all of this, too, is that whole, yeah, captive nations uh, demon. <laughs> well, I mean... In, in this story, sometimes the Ukrainians uh, don't even seem the most crazy because some some guys are pulling out battles from hundreds of years ago uh, <laughs> to <laughs> to push forward. Um, but yeah, okay. Um, carrying on, okay. Sabotage networks near the Afghan border. Um, almost all of the key figures in Far West um, were officers and agents of GRU. Um, almost, well, all the ones we know of were under the care of um, were under the care of uh, Colonel General y Yuri Gusev, uh, whose rank is slightly different every time we read. Uh, <laughs> who was first deputy head of GRU. Um, by the way, folks, again, we're, we're not trying yeah. to confuse you, but it's just like these characters had so many different... A lot of them have actually gotten plastic surgery and stuff to boot. I mean, it's almost like face-off or something sometimes. I've actually kind of wondered, too, if they use each other's names at times for aliens. Oh, I... I, I think I would I mean I was gonna mention that when you were talking about uh Polyakov. Um you know, like how can we even know? Because I, I, I remember looking up, you know, in doing research on Gusev, looking up, and there was a big article that I didn't read, but um I the the little segment that I did read, it was talking about the nineteen ninety-one coup and how one uh general um you know was trying to get through a barrier and he had um described himself yeah he'd he'd use the cover name yuri gusev to to like pass a checkpoint or something um and and then it you know after going through all this you think oh jesus christ like uh you know uh, did he know what he was doing <laughs> yeah no i know it's just incredible some of this stuff yeah and 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 the fact that i mean guys everything every single thing i mean going reinforcing the propaganda thing that you said it, what's interesting is then every source or every little article or bit of det detail you go look for the author and suddenly you get a whole load of new connections or ask you know why is this person writing this and uh these kinds of things so it's um it's uh very schizophrenic all of this stuff <laughs> okay carrying on yep um so gusev was involved in gru's anti-cocon program which we've kind of established so this allowed him to make all sorts of shady contacts and um super uh, this is a quote I'll, here I'll the interject very quick senate the anti-cocon yeah. <laughs> thing I, I don't mean to keep going this but this actually ties into those uh i'd mentioned them earlier actually the coacoms these were the stores by the way that you could buy these western luxury goods in but it, it seems like what was happening is the black marketeers were actually making like these knockoff like western stuff that they were selling there and then also repurposing and selling to uh you know europeans and what have you as well so it's interesting that like they were in charge of the anti-com-com -com activities like basically yeah it's like 
their way again of you know singling out good smugglers quote unquote from bad smugglers that's once again what they would be doing with this kind of stuff <laughs> yeah um yeah the quote here is also uh it allowed him to supervise the power structure of the national liberation movement in the third world they did not give any more information to this i'm still going through some of the stuff so hopefully that will come more apparent um, but I'm guessing, you know, where we've seen these connections to uh, uh, Angola, um, you know, just Southern Africa in general, we know places where the Soviet Union must have been. I, I can imagine it's in reference to that. Um, he's also, as we're getting into, a very shadowy figure in the fall of the Soviet power bloc. Um, so, you know, if we've got to pick fingers at people who are responsible, it's looking like Gusev is, is a big one. Um, I think an interesting thing to just think about, like going into this and maybe remember as we get into all of this stuff, um, the effect of these men, not just on like current affairs or you know what what happened relations and these kinds of things but really on human history i mean if we think about everything we know about the oun i mean the effect on like the course of humanity is um i think what's at stake here um with some of the things that are going on um and and i'm i just i guess just going into that we i'll go into some more a, a longer credit for um third barbarossa so third you know third barbarossa it's a book by um someone called it's in russian though um if you've got chrome chrome auto translates uh all of this all of this stuff pretty pretty well um much of the source of information comes from third barbarossa which was written by uh anton baumgarten uh sometimes i've seen his name as written as bernhardovich i don't know much about russian so i don't know where, whether that's right or what's the right one is but um real big credit to him and some other people i'm going to mention the book is hosted on left.ru uh some of this uh, i i can get to it via google um there's also loads of articles um there by um a litany of writers so uh some of them i've listed here is not an extensive list but um these were some i saw and a lot of them i just want to mention them so valentin zorin andrew petrov uh vadim and marina stoltz natasha barch uh and many more um also uh, there are two task forces, investigative task forces. So once the Burtz have, and, and they've, this actually was quite interesting. So one's called the Burtsev task force. Um, but Vladimir Burtsev is a kind of Russian anti-fascist and social activist. Um, he exposed uh, Yevno Azef, who was a kind of double agent and informant for the uh Akrana. um another group involved in this and this is i think the uh, i i just looked this up literally as um uh steve was uh doing his bit so um another one is called uh, the yaroslav halan task force and uh yaroslav halan was a a west ukrainian 
um, basically like political activists. And he was also into Ukrainian nationalism and liberation, but in a healthy way. Um, he was um, eventually he he was very critical of the OUN. He was eventually assassinated on orders of the OUN. Um, and uh, Bo Bodan uh, Stashinsky, who I think was the person that uh, assassinated Stefan Bandera, um, he was the one that apprehended uh, Yaroslav's killer. Um, so the, the task force that has got some of the information from this there, I, I think a lot of it, they, they must be doing some of the secret stuff or whatever, um, is yeah, but, but Seb and, uh, Yaroslav Halan. So, um, that, that was, uh, really interesting to read. Um, another, so there, there also, uh, there was another source who was an FSB officer by the name of Armen Sargsyan. Um, he passed away, uh, you know, quote, passed away um, in connection with this. And a lot of the people and sources, as we kind of read through this, have have died, uh, which is, um, yeah, of course, really tragic. And, um, you know, I guess uh, I salute, you know, their sacrifice uh, for, for those people that did this, because um, th this work is of the greatest importance um also uh apologies for there'll be a lot of plagiarism but obviously no no one's making money here except uh recluse um so we so um but a lot of the stuff when it's translated to english reads really nicely also there's the final thing um there's a credit at the top of third barbarossa um by anton i presume uh, and it's to his grandfather, Alexander, and his comrades from the Moscow militia who died in the Bryansk cauldron in the autumn of 1941. Um, and obviously, because it's his book, I wanted to just mention that. But also, I mean, we, we have another cauldron today. Uh, uh, th that was what was, um, I guess, really touching about that is, uh, you know, we've heard Bakhmut in ukraine described as a cauldron and this story um really brings us to how how we got there um you know from i guess what if wackle was the uh chap you know the first first edition uh this this fills in the gap so um uh recluse do you do you have anything to say uh, no man i think that was well said sir all right and i think that's also a good note to uh end things on for now we will be back here in the very near future to give you guys the lowdown on the uh, three founding geniuses, if you will, behind Far West Limited. It's uh, quite a story with these characters and uh, how they branched out from their time with Mr. Gusev. So, as I say to you guys, as always, thank you so much for listening and good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell. I tell you what, put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me. Stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold. Jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out. Cause they done let the wolves out. Shooting up the street Mama, fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama, no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 